Well, good morning. It is good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. Whether you're here or at home, it is good to be worshiping God with you. My name is Ryan Keith. I'm the community engagement pastor here at the church. And we are going to be in 1 Kings chapter 18 today. If you're new or visiting today, uh, we are going through a series that we're calling A King for the People and a People for the King. From beginning of February through June, most of June, we're going through the books of First and Second Kings. But before we get there, I want to tell you a story. In October 2019, I found myself in Chiang Mai, Thailand. I mean, I didn't just show up there. Uh, I, I, was, uh, I was there for a, a gathering, a super fun gathering of about 500 ministry leaders from 70 different countries, all focused on caring for kids who have lost their parents. And uh, one of the things I love doing when I travel to new places, I'd never been uh, anywhere in that part of the world, and I'd never been to Chiang Mai. And so I love going into the streets and just walking the streets and taking in the beauty, the local cultures, the local food, meeting people. I love going to see the beauty that God has made. And as I was walking the streets of Chiang Mai uh, with my friend Remy from Zambia, we were uh, just struck by all of the Buddhist temples around Chiang Mai. There's 117 of them. And even more than that, there's, there's hundreds, if not thousands of sculptures and, and bowls in restaurants and in parks and, and just the oddest places where people made these bowls and they put little bits of food as an offering of worship to Buddha. And, and we've got a couple images of, of these uh, things, I think. So check this out. Like you would be just walking around a corner and then you'd see this, right? These, these, these uh, places of worship. And then the next one is even more ornate, right? At night, just the gold and the glimmer of this, of this um, place of worship to Buddha. And I show you these images because even in their ornateness, there's such tragedy. There's darkness because the objects of their worship, the places that they have created are futile. They don't know who Jesus is or what he's done for them. So as I was thinking about that story, I mean, as I'm preparing for today and the text, I thought about that time in Chiang Mai. But then as I thought about that and, and just reminding myself to pray for the people of Chiang Mai, that they would come into a relationship with Jesus, that they would take away the ornate things that are, are you know, intriguing to the eye, but cast them aside and turn their eyes toward Jesus. As I was praying for that, God convicted me of something else, that all around me and all around us are people that I don't feel a burden that they don't know the Lord yet. I don't need to go to Chiang Mai to find people who are wandering through life, worshiping something that's not true. They're intoxicated by screens and sports and busyness. Whatever they're into that's not of the Lord, there's tragedy. It's both breathtaking and tragic all at the same time. 
my prayer for us today is that we see that we all need the might and mercy of God. May we yearn for all we encounter to turn their eyes toward Jesus and follow them, follow him with their lives. He is sovereign over us all, including you and me. He is who we should worship and no one or nothing else. Because friends, increasingly, the message we are getting in our culture today is that worship of any sort is beautiful and personal. You do you. And slowly, you and I can become intoxicated by that idea. And actually, it's beginning to happen over 30, I think it's like 37%. I'm blanking now and I didn't write it down, but it's about 37%. It's in that ballpark of millennials say it is wrong to share your faith for the purposes of getting someone to agree with you. And there's generally groans. So I'm proud of you for not groaning because here's why I'm proud of you for not groaning. People have been outraged by this Barnes study about millennials and Gen Zers are even worse. And we decry the, the death of Christianity in the young generation. But so many of us, all research says, so many of us are not telling anyone about Jesus. Young adults just have the audacity to say what they believe. We are not sharing our faith like we should. We are not yearning for people to turn to Jesus. We're just often upset that things aren't going our way. Today's passage reminds us that our hearts should be broken by this increasingly intoxicated environment that says, you do you. You is beautiful. There is beauty in our differences for sure, but there's tragedy when there are people worshiping something or someone that is not our God. What I want to do today, what I want to do today is to give you a quick background of what was happening um, right up to chapter 18, where we're going to be today. And I want to give you a brief overview of the people and the story, the characters that you'll meet so you know who they are. And then I'm going to read all of 1 Kings chapter 18. The story is packed with power and display of God's might and mercy. So we're going to read it in its entirety. And then I'm going to review a few life lessons that we can learn from Elijah in this chapter. So that we may go and do likewise this week and the weeks to come. So the background of just some of the people in the chapter that we're, we're going to read. Elijah, we're going to meet Elijah. He is the main man in the story, but we'll see that God is the hero. Elijah, you might remember from chapter 17, is a prophet. And a prophet's role is to declare and demonstrate the power of God. But Elijah isn't just any prophet. Many people, many historians, biblical scholars... And a lot of God's people, since the beginning of God's people, consider him a prophet among prophets. He is a foretaste of Jesus. And we have a lot that we can learn from him. On the opposite side of the spectrum are King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. Ahab, you might remember, is the king, but he's not just a king. He's the worst of the worst of all kings who ever reigned. 
and his wife Jezebel had spread the worship of Baal to every extent of society. And finally, who is Baal? In Canaanite religion, Baal, they believed, this false god, Baal, had the authority over rain and fertility of soil in the land. But he sometimes was dead and needed to be revived, and it was then that the rain would come. Not a very strong god, but hey. Today's text doesn't involve some small group of crazy people who worship Baal. I remember as a kid being like amazed at the story we're about to read. And like, wow, those people were real Looney Tunes. Like we all know some Looney Tune people and like, okay, they're just gonna be them. And like, you know, we're gonna tolerate them. You know, like the funny uncle. I'm trying to think through which, I, I don't have any funny uncles. Uh, you know, less is more. This isn't a small group of people that, that are worshiping Baal. No, Baal worship had intoxicated the people of God and was pervasive everywhere in society. So Baal isn't a small figure in the story, even though we know he's a false God. But then and there, even God's people had become intoxicated by this. Jezebel had destroyed the altars of God's people and this power couple of Ahab and Jezebel had spread false God worship throughout society. And the question that it begs for us is what are we intoxicated by that blinds us from worshiping God and God alone? Last week, Trent focused on chapter 17. In that chapter, you may remember that the prophet Elijah made his debut in the Bible by doing something quite bold. He brought a promise of drought to King Ahab. Elijah, hearing from God, goes away after telling Ahab about the drought. And the drought that was predicted by Elijah is now going on three years as we enter into chapter 18, right? So he was afraid of Ahab before or felt led by God to go away and now this predicted drought has been going on for three years. That's where we are, all right? Now let's read 1 Kings chapter 18 in its entirety. Beginning with verse one. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, third year of the drought, saying, go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. Now, I'm not going to stop every time because there's 46 verses and that would take all day. If we were in Zimbabwe, you know, we might do that. But we're not. And I know you have things to do, but I will stop here. Listen, so go show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain. Simple enough, right? Go and see the king who you fled from when you predicted the drought and show yourself to this now surely angrier king who is experiencing drought for three years. Would you do that? Let's see what happens. Verse two. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. He did it. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. So it wasn't just a famine. It was particularly severe where Ahab and his wife Jezebel lived in Samaria. And Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now, Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. 
And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and says, is it you, my Lord, Elijah? And he, being Elijah, answered him, it is I. Go tell your Lord, Ahab, behold, Elijah is here. And he said, how have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you, right? Ahab's trying to find and capture and kill Elijah. And when they would say he is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not bound you. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I have gone from you, the spirit of the Lord will carry you. I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told my Lord what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? How I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here and he will kill me. Let me stop there just for a second. Obadiah is like a double agent, right? He's like hiding. He is, he's not like hiding. He's hiding the prophets of God, feeding them, right? And caring for them in secret while at the same time being the head of the household for the guy and his wife who are trying to kill all of these people. And Elijah's saying, yeah, go tell people, go tell Ahab, that I want to see him. Yeah, right. But Elijah in his mercy makes a promise. This is what he says. And Elijah said, in verse 8, 15, and Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. Like I'm not going anywhere. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. The king came to him. I'm sure that was pretty unusual. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he, being Elijah, answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have in your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all of Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Like bring all the people, bring all the prophets, bring yourself to me. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. 
And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now we know from later in the text, and we just heard about Obadiah and the people that he's, he's hiding. We know that Elijah is not actually the only person, but the magnitude of this scene, right? The magnitude of this scene, all of God's people who have turned to Baal, Ahab, the prophets of Baal, they're all gathered around, all looking at him. it would feel alone, right? And he's also struck by the reality of that, like, you other people who claim to believe in the Lord, yet where are you? I'm the only one being bold and standing up for what's true because heaven forbid we stand on the side of God because someone might think that we're weird for being a follower of God. Someone might think that we're different. Someone might be offended by us speaking truth into their lives. Heaven forbid we do that. As I read that text, that part of the text, I was convicted like, do I want to be like Elijah and stand for God? Or do I want to hide him in my heart and hope the world goes away? Well, they're all dying, flailing and thrashing about far from the Lord. Let's keep reading. Verse 23. Let two bulls be given to us. So Elijah's setting out the, the challenge here. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. We agree. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first. For you are many and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. So like, out of the bulls, you pick first. I don't want any complaints after like the rules weren't fair. You took the good bull. I had the bad bull. Like, you know, my God wasn't pleased only because we didn't get the right one. Like you pick first. No funny business. And 26, and they took the bull that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them saying, cry aloud for he is a God. Either he is musing or he's relieving himself or he is on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. Some of you rightly left because that's ridiculous. What kind of God is that? And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. 
That means like when the sacrifice is offered, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. These last few verses are painful. Can you imagine this scene? God can. As I studied this passage, I kept thinking about how this is a microcosm of God watching his people all the way back to the beginning of time. But especially when God uh, allowed Saul to become king. You say you want a king. You don't need a king. I'm your king. You have me. God is the only king that you need. Yet they wanted a king. You say I'm not enough for you after all I've done. You say you need bail now. How's that working out for you? Elijah, like God for his people, lets them languish in self-chosen worship and praise of another false God until they have nowhere else to turn because God has been there all along. They are the ones, we are the ones who were enemies of God. This worship procession that we just read moved from intentionally reverent to folly to tragic as they cut themselves. And this scene powerfully ends, no one answered, no one paid attention. Let's keep reading. Back to verse three. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. Sound familiar? Jesus, come near to me and I will give you rest. Come near to me. And all the people came near to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. This, this altar that Jezebel and Ahab and the prophets of Baal had destroyed. He started repairing it. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the son of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. Just picture that for a second. It's like he took 12 stones and for each tribe, he put it down and said, as if saying like, this is who you are. This is what God has done. Since the beginning of God's people, you have built monuments and dedications and altars to, to commemorate the power and might and faithfulness of our God. This is who you are. Not this false stuff. This is who you are. Even the construction of the altar is a declaration from Elijah. You are not being who you are. You are God's people. You belong to him. You are part of this altar. Come. And he keeps going in 32. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two sheaves of seed. That's like 14 liters. So this is a big trench. And he put the wood in order and cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. In the midst of a drought, friends, in the midst of a drought, let's pause there. In the midst of a drought, Elijah had them find, carry, and pour water three times. Each time having to pause probably to go down and get more water from somewhere. What faith? Trusting that God will provide. These people watching this scene play out were likely hot after being out there for hours. But Elijah covers the altar 
with many liters of water sure that there's to make sure there's no forgery. Like this wood and altar is gonna be soaked. And because God is worthy of everything we have, we cannot, we cannot hold back from giving God everything. He is God and we must give him all we have always. Not just what we're comfortable with, not what just makes wise sense. It all belongs to the Lord. Even in a drought, our water belongs to the Lord. He is worthy of our everything. Let's keep going. Verse 36. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. And that I have done all of these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that these people may know that you, O Lord, are God. And that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust. And licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. And Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink. For there is a sound of the rushing of rain. And let me just point out that we're going to hear in a few verses. We don't see any evidence that rain is coming. But remember from verse one, when Ahab, uh, when Elijah was told to go see Ahab and God said, if you go show yourself to Ahab, I will bring the rain. Elijah knows that he has shown himself to Ahab. He knows that God is present. He knows that God is, had just brought the fire and he knows that God will provide the rain. So let's keep reading. Verse 42 says, so Ahab went up to eat and to drink and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel. And he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, there was nothing. And he said, go again, seven times. And at the seventh time, he said, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, go up and say, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. And he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Thanks be to God. What a powerful story, right? A powerful story about the trust trust in the might and mercy of God. There is so much packed into this text, friends, which one pastor on our staff last week rightly described as the showdown throwdown. It's awesome. But I just want to give you three brief life lessons that we can take away from Elijah in this chapter with the hope that we may go and do likewise. The first life lesson is this. Turn to God first and always 
Turn to God first and always. He is mighty and merciful. Turn to God first and always. He is mighty and merciful. He is mighty. He alone brings the rain. He alone brings the fire and the restoration in our lives. Turn to God. Elijah teaches us to turn to God. My six-year-old son, Camden, likes to say, always be on God's team because God's team always wins. It's cute and it's true. Elijah and Camden understand we need to look to God. Friends, we can't look to God and something else at the same time as if they're equal. We also shouldn't look to God last after trying everything else. He is what we need. We don't need tricks. We need God. We need the maker of the heavens and the earth. We need God who sees us and knows us because he made us and he loves us. He didn't first leave us. We were the ones who turned our backs to him. We need to look to God first and always. He is merciful. We need God to send a rescuer because as good and powerful as this chapter is, we know that the worship of Baal didn't stop there. Elijah runs to Jezreel. That's where Ahab and Jezebel were living. Elijah runs to Jezreel, likely thinking the worship of Baal is over. He had just showed that Baal is fake. He had just slaughtered 450 of Baal's prophets. He had just prepared an altar that was literally consumed by fire coming from heaven. Awesome. But we all know it's not where it ends. And we'll see that next week. Because you and I and our friends and our neighbors are still worshiping things that aren't real. I think we just do a better job of hiding them. Fire and rain are powerful gifts from God to us in this chapter. But we don't need fire and rain. We need God who provides the fire and rain that we need who fills the voids of our heart and bridges the gaps between us and him. We need the Lord. He is Jehovah Jireh, the great provider. Look to God first and always. He is merciful, knowing that we were enemies of his, thrashing about, separated from him, not being able to find the way to enter the Holy of Holies, to be right with him. He knows that we cannot do it. So he said, I am coming. Enough. He is merciful and gave us Jesus. Romans 5, 8 always comes to mind. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He came for us when we were thrashing and lashing and rejecting him over and over and over again. He's like, enough. I am coming. We need Jesus who in coming makes a way for us to be in right relationship with God. In his mercy, God sacrifices one and only son that we may have life and have it to the full. Because in Christ, we are made new. And in the mercy of God through Jesus, he has made a way.
The second life lesson from Elijah is this. We should be strong in conviction and courageous to carry that faith out. We should be strong in conviction and courageous to carry that faith out. Come what may. Friends, Elijah told Ahab about the drought and then went back because he knew God's voice and was, God was asking him to go back. So he did it. God comforted, I mean, Elijah comforted Obadiah through Elijah. God comforted uh, Obadiah through Elijah, asking him to trust God even more, to have courage to trust in God, no matter the cost of what his mind could imagine. Come what may, we can trust in God. God's job isn't to make your life easier. It's to use you for his glory. Elijah took on the prophets of Baal who had saturated and infiltrated every corner of society. Can you imagine being surrounded? And we're afraid we might offend people or it might get weird. Can you imagine being surrounded by people who want to kill you and still speaking truth? The church is built on people saying hard things in the face of adversity because it means it must be true. The apostles died one after another for standing truth in the face of threat and attack on their life. And the word of God spread and people knew and, and, and gave their lives to Jesus because they were like, this must be true. Who would do that? Yet we claim to be believers of God and we're hiding in a corner, hoping the world will leave us alone while they're all dying, chasing a God that isn't real. Elijah stood before all the people surrounded by Ahab and enemies of God and the prophets of Baal and spoke the truth. He sought the glory of God, not his own rescue. He wanted to obey God and did so for the glory of God, regardless of what would happen to himself. He was all in and carried it out. Friends, we can't have convictions of who God is and read his word and then not go and live that out in the world. My, my, my strong message and my energy is just as I've been praying for you and, and honestly, like weeping for us as a church family, as a community of believers, this is like who we are and what we believe is what we do when all is on the line. Who we are and what we believe is what we do when all is on the line. Be strong in conviction and courageous to carry it out. Tim Keller, many of you know him. Tim Keller has this powerful little ditty about this chapter. He says, we can make the altar, but only God can bring the fire. We've got to be strong in conviction and courageous to carry it out. Like we've got to do the hard part of getting to know God, knowing his word, 
becoming in love with him, desiring to be more of him, more of his word, more of the power of the Holy Spirit, more relinquishing to the power of God, less of me, more of you, Lord, whatever you need, more of that meditating on day and night and saying, God, whatever you want of me, I want to give it to you because being on your team is always better than being on my team. You don't do that overnight. You don't become Elijah overnight in the face of surrounding adversity and speak truth. You intentionally, daily, meticulously build your altar as a love offering to God. And then when the time comes, you know with strong conviction, you have the courage to carry it out. The last lesson, there's so many from Elijah in this chapter and I had a list, but we're not in Zimbabwe. I can't preach for three hours. You have other places to go. So the last one for today is this. Pray boldly. Pray boldly and expect God to show up. Pray boldly and expect God to show up. And I'm not sorry. I've been praying boldly over all of you this week. Pray boldly that our church family turns to him today and lives for him. Pray boldly that those who don't yet know him see Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Pray boldly that God will provide opportunities for you to share the hope that you have in Jesus. Then expect God to show up. When people want to know about the hope that you have in Jesus, or you see someone suffering or struggling or languishing in life, and you see that happening, you know that that's a prayer that we have prayed. Don't say, I, I'm just not ready. It's not about you being ready. It's about the Lord. Step into that. Elijah's life was all in for God. He prayed boldly and expected God to show up. He put his life on the line so people would turn to God and live for the Lord, setting aside anything or anyone else as the object of their worship. Our lives, friends, our lives are to be examples of the might and mercy of God, which should fill us with hope and thanksgiving. May we pray boldly. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are once an enemy of God. Your life is forever transformed by the power of Jesus and the presence of the Holy Spirit, doing a mighty work in and through your life as you relinquish control and give everything to the mighty hand of God. If he can remake me, he can remake you. I was once lost, but now I have been found by him. We can pray boldly, knowing what God has done for us. May we pray boldly like Elijah and trust God to show up and turn others toward him. Elijah had hoped that the people would turn from Baal and turn toward God. He was thankful to God for the ways he would provide the fire and the rain, not for the fire and the rain alone, but that people would turn to God by seeing that God cares. God is real. His hope and thanksgiving displayed the might and mercy of God. Friends, as followers of Jesus, we know he rescued us. We can have hope and thanksgiving that he can restore the relationship with others who don't yet know him as their Lord and Savior. The longer I do ministry, the more I'm convicted. God is not too small. Our prayers are too small. God can move mountains. Like Elijah, 
your life as a prophet of God is to declare and demonstrate the power of God for his glory. Like the altar fully consumed by God in this chapter, our lives are living sacrifices for God who consumes us in total and makes us new. Our lives should display the work of God so that others may turn to him today and live for him as well. Come and see what God has done. The totality of the mighty work God has done brings him glory. Pray boldly, pray boldly for God to use you and expect him to show up. Friends, if you are not yet a follower of Jesus, I invite you to consider this story from chapter 18 about the might and mercy of God. Turn to him and live for him alone. Pray boldly and relinquish your life to him today. It's not too late. You aren't too far away. I, I, I often meet people who say, well, I've done too much. If people only knew who I was. They've been told their whole lives by dads or moms or grandmas or employers or past relationships, lies about who they are and how worthless they are or how insufficient they are. That is not who you are. You are a treasured creation of the king who loved you so much that he emptied himself from heaven and poured all of his power and all of his might into Jesus to come and live and die on the cross, taking all of your stuff, all of your sin, all of the hidden parts of you that you have told no one about. Here's the clue. God knows you better than you do. He knows every fiber of your being and he loves you. You are not too far. It is not too late. Today is a day of mercy. Because like the spring rain, Jesus is coming back. And today is a day of mercy because he has not come back yet. He is mighty and powerful and can do anything. And he has died on the cross and rose again, defeating death so that you and I might have life and have it to the full. But friends, we can't limp between two lives. You can either bow down and say what people say in verse Kings 18, 39, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. Or you can run away as an enemy of God, but you can't do both. Nothing and no one can withstand the authority of God. Nothing, no one. In God's mercy though, friends, in God's mercy, we know of Jesus. Jesus' life and death and re resurrection vanquishes the root of sin and his coming return vanquishes Satan to death forever. It is finished with Jesus. We don't need to and should never slaughter those who are enemies of God in word or deed because the Bible through Jesus says that Jesus is enough. In Romans 12 verses 19 through 21, it says this, 
Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For I do, by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not, over, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Instead of vengeance, our lives display the might and mercy of God. May we pray boldly that our lives declare and demonstrate him. Does your life display what he's done for you? His return is imminent. Now is the time to get right before the Lord and turn to him for the first time and turn back or turn back to him again. It's not enough to be impressed that we've seen evidence of God in today's story and appreciate that there is a God. But today is a day to get low, bow down and present our lives to the King of Kings as our Lord and Savior to make Jesus the Lord and Savior of our lives. Jesus is coming. And today is the day to declare Jesus is Lord of your life. Today is a day of mercy and before a mighty God who loves you so much that he sent Jesus to live and die and defeat death on the cross for you, rising again. Jesus did that for you, you personally, for me and you. He loves you. Beloved, we need the Lord. He is mighty and merciful. Turn to the Lord and live your life for his glory today. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for your might and your mercy. I thank you for the power of your word. I thank you for the faith of Elijah. What a great encouragement to us. And Elijah's faith, we continue to bear fruit from that faith. And we can know, Lord, that you are the one we should turn to. You are the one worthy of our worship and no one else. Nothing else, just you. So I pray, Lord, as we transition, continue in worship, Lord, to the singing of these songs. Lord, I pray that you receive our worship now. Grow in us a desire to worship you and you only. Strengthen our courage. Help us to live that out daily. It's you we want. It's you we need. Hear our praises now. In your mighty name we pray. Amen. Let's sing.